In today's episode, we discuss Nicolas Cage's 2006 film, Wicker Man. It's a remake of the 70s version. In this film, Nicolas Cage battles against bees and a matriarchal society who want to sacrifice him. We also discuss natural law and have a fierce argument about the nature of free will. Come and listen. You know, uh, Brian, as we were uh, kind of ascending to this peak, I looked mm-hmm. over the looked over the ledge there, and I saw what looked to be uh, a few people assembling uh, a human made out of sticks and, and branches. Goodness, was this um, a small sort of doll sized human? For scale, it's difficult to say. An effigy of a man, maybe the half of the size of a tree. Half the size of a tree, so half like as tall as a tree, but sort of skinnier. Uh, I was thinking more height-wise, so oh. I'd put it at maybe, maybe it was human scale, about six foot. It's about six foot. Um, do you have any thoughts about what they're going to do with this wicker man? I overheard some murmuring about there not being enough Fig Newtons, and oh. I guess the Fig Newton supply had uh, run down, and they felt that uh, burning an effigy would bring back their Fig Newtons, but I can't say for sure. There's nothing more frustrating than a deficit of Fig Newtons. And if there's one thing that's going to bring it back, it's burning a, a wooden effigy of a human. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's what I gathered. But uh, did you see that? I don't know if you no, saw I, I'm that. Terrified of looking over the edge of, yeah. of our of our precipices. Keep my eyes glued to the ground. How's the hike going? It's going fine. I got a wicked bee sting earlier. Which, oh. um, yeah, I don't know if I told you, but I'm actually, uh, I can go into anaphylactic shock. Hmm. And so I always carry a couple of pens of uh, epi, EpiPens, epinephrine. Oh, right. Uh, mm-hmm. epi, EpiB is what it could be called by. That's mm-hmm. what it was called by in a movie or a documentary mm-hmm. I saw called The Wicker Man, 2006. He had uh, EpiBs. EpiBs? Yeah, that's the name of that was on the shot. So, but you're telling me that you saw... Uh, 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 an effigy of someone down in the valley and mm-hmm. another strange coincidence that I carry these EpiPens and I'm allergic to bee stings. That's correct. And, and both of these are connected to that movie. And uh, coincidentally, we both have seen that movie, Wicker Man 2006. Not the 1973 version, but the 2006 much improved uh, Nicolas Cage version. Improved, can't say, but... A reimagination of the Wicker Man. What'd you think of this updated reimagination? I saw it twice. <laughs> yeah. I would say on first viewing, I found it to be quite boring. Mm. Second viewing, there were things I picked up that I enjoyed more. Let's say that. See, you, you, this movie was hour and 45 minutes long. You, you've watched it twice. Yeah. As soon as the hour and 45 hit... I just hit replay on your VCR. Yeah, and I just sat back and uh, enjoyed another <laughs> go of it. What did you discover on the second viewing? Well, there are parts of the movie that I think had more more interesting value than I first uh, appreciated on the first viewing. So, um, plot summary, I don't know if it's necessary, but compulsory to, to, to talk about. So, there's a, a man, Nicolas Cage who uh, is drawn to an island because his ex-fiancé is saying that their child has been kidnapped or is missing. Mm -hmm. 
He does a whole uh, investigation of the island, island, and then, uh, spoiler, finds out that he has been duped and is to be sacrificed in a large human effigy of much larger than six feet, probably 36 feet, 60 feet. I'm not good on scale. I'm not mm. sure how big it was. So similar idea of a missing child from the 1970s version, but in the 1970s version, there was no wife who lived on the island, right? Yeah, that's true. There was no wife that lived on the island. There was He came on his own detective work based mm. on a letter. And in this movie, same thing. He gets a letter from his fiancée. Okay, the police officer, sorry to not uh, describe uh, precisely, but the person that's coming to do the investigation is a police officer in both movies. In the 2006 version, it's Nicolas Cage. He's coming to investigate his own missing child. And to be honest with you, I did listen to the director commentary. The only reason for listening to it was to figure out this first quarter of the movie. And hopefully we can discover this together as to what the point of it was. So the beginning of the movie has Nick Cage on a motorbike approaching a car that in the backseat a child has thrown a toy out. He picks up the toy, chases down the car, returns the toy to this kid in the backseat. Little exchange between Nick the dri- and the kid and the driver, who is the mother of the kid. The kid then throws the toy back out of the window. Nick grabs it and doesn't realize that he steps in front of a semi that's coming down the road. And the semi trailer then adjusts and uh, runs into this this car where the mother and child are. And it all bursts into flames. Later, we find out that the mother and child are not to be found within the vehicle. I found this to be completely strange, unnecessary, and there's flashbacks to it throughout the movie, and I don't understand why it's in the movie. Yeah, and I believe that the mother and the child, and also his colleague, the female police officer, were all in on the luring deception. They were all residents of the island. Did, did you get that too? I didn't get it, and that's... <laughs> Even on second viewing, I didn't get that. So this is why I'm asking you. Okay, that's a curious piece. I did detect that the female police officer that brought the letter to Nick Cage was part of the island culture. Because at one point, there was a flashback. She has a little bee on her face and stuff like that. But I didn't I didn't collect that from the mother and child in the in the in the vehicle. Did they really get burned up in there? Did that accident even happen? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It, it, he suffers from visions, delusions mm-hmm. uh, throughout the movie and takes pills of some kind for them. But one gets the impression that those were caused, those delusions were caused by the trauma of the actual mother-daughter vehicular manslaughter event. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. There's there's flashbacks to it later throughout the movie where the girl isn't there in the back seat. And and then I'm pretty sure that both the mom and the daughter from the car crash are at the Wicker Man sacrifice scene. Oh. Whether whether that's also an illusion, who knows? But no, I I believe they were part of it. But yeah, um, you know, did they stage this accident? The, the accident on the road didn't have anything to do with getting the letter, and come, that all happened before he got the letter. So I don't really see a connection there. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's strange. Um, but the director's I, commentary, you say, did did not answer this question? No. All they said was that they filmed Nick Cage driving around on a motorbike for an extended period of time, evidently hours, and they only, only used a small section of it. Uh, but um, maybe, maybe they were going to do something else with that footage and just decided to 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I was at, at one point considering that, you know, Nick ha- went to get the toy in the street. And then by getting that toy and not being aware of his surroundings, he inadvertently caused the death of a mother and her child. And there was obviously he's having some guilt associated with that, some concerns associated with that. Uh, maybe the wicker man uh, is a punishment for that. Like I'm, I was really trying to fish around as to how this was connected in a morality way or a fatalistic way. And yeah, it just felt oddly placed and the director didn't mention anything about it. Um, and the fact that he kept inserting and, and, and deleting the, who was in the car and uh, yeah. And the, and the female detective was say, or a police woman was saying that no one was found in the car. And it's just like, what is going on? Like, and, and that didn't, yeah, as your point, it didn't even move him to the Island because he got a letter later, although it was a sympathy letter, well, it was within a bunch of sympathy letters that he was getting. Mm-hmm. And then that letter brought him to the island. But he could have got that letter at random. He'd be just as motivated whether he inadvertently caused an accident on his on his job or not. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It didn't, didn't add to the motivation or purpose of the main lead. The only possible connection is that the trauma of the of witnessing the accident gave him the needed time off to go and sleuth around on this island. So maybe that was, mm. you know, but they, they, the island dwellers maybe could have staged a less complicated event that would have required Nick Cage to take some time off. Like maybe they could have, you know, poisoned him or something. I don't know. I mean, just the fact that his fiance or ex fiance is saying that they're his child or their child is missing. Take some days off, Nick, you know, take a yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah. Take it, take a month. Yeah, retire. Yeah, that is weird. I never realized how unconnected the mother-daughter scene is to the later gist of the story. Yeah, and he's depicted at the beginning as this kind of literary-minded guy. He he, you know, he's got his, he's out with his partner, and his partner's just sort of a, presented as kind of a typical cop, you know, scarf and burgers and and chatting up waitresses and stuff. And meanwhile, Nicholas Cage is looking at the, the paperback novels that are in the back. And, and that, yeah. does, that doesn't really develop, you know? No. He just wears a suit and putts around the island the rest of the movie. Yeah. So the what I learned from the director commentary were a few things, but the suit was one piece. Why was he wearing a suit the entire time? He's <laughs> also like sweating and running and riding bicycles and swimming. And all the time he's just back in a suit. Yeah. And uh, one view was that he was trying to impress his ex-fiance, so he wanted to dress well. The view that wasn't expressed, which is what I thought of, was that he it felt like he wanted to become a detective. And so he's playing a part, a potential future part of himself where he's, I'm going to go and be in a suit because that's what detectives do. And he's not in his jurisdiction. So he's playing uh, a, a, a future version of himself at a different place kind of projecting mm. himself into that as a, as a playthrough, but. Oh yeah. They, so he was like more of just a, a traffic cop in reality, but he was trying to grow into the role of detective. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And then there was a, that little um, Easter egg, if that's what it's called, where uh, <laughs> on, on the wall of the pr- police precinct, there's a photo of the original police officer uh, from the 1973 movie as missing. So. Yeah. And I never would have seen that if you hadn't. Alerted me to it. <laughs> well, that was because the director commentary referenced that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, fe- I, one, my 
major takeaway from this movie is that it had, I don't know, there's something very 2006 about it. It had like this, the music of the movie I felt like was one of the main characters in a weird way. Like it was so, I don't know, it was sort of like typical Hollywood music. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like the music was always involved in the filming. It was always trying to build tension or trying to build excitement or, mm-hmm. it, and it had this kind of typical Hollywood majesty vibe to it. And, um, just the they were trying to do way too much with the music. I felt hmm. it had sort Nick. of a Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, Indiana Jones kind of soundtrack, and it was totally off <laughs> uh, from what was actually happening on the screen. <laughs> yeah, the, the the commentary, the last thing in the commentary, did say that the 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 most dramatic scenes that Nick Cage did were improvised by him, not written in script, <laughs> and they just Why came from him. The- <laughs> yeah. yeah so like That's when so he, yeah so like when he uh the specific scene where he he comes out of the crypt and he and he's bursting out of the crypt just despite being trapped underwater for full 24 hours just comes bursting out and, and has tons of energy and is asking about a burnt doll um yeah that was all improvised <laughs> and the, the the people who are on the commentary was the director and a few actors and uh, the, um, one of the actresses, which I can't remember which one, which one it was at that scene in that, in that scene, uh, I guess his fiance was saying how amazing that energy was and how it just kind of came bursting out of him in this like magical way. Yeah. Which was magical. Pretty. <laughs> so I don't know. He, we, we've had this talk about Dick Cage and kind of how he is. Uh, seen as overdramatic, terrible actor. And I saw him in his first movies and he kind of played the same part, yet he's kind of pulled the wool over the eyes of all other, not all of other, but some Hollywood producers and other actors and actresses who feel he's a fantastic, very talented person. And, and it's it's interesting to, to see that disconnect or, or difference. I found he has outbursts of volume there there's dialogue that is delivered with higher volume mm-hmm. and and shouted i don't right. think that really i i hope that that's not able to fool these hollywood executives or or hollywood producers or whatever but that seems to be the only variance in his acting it's either sort of this casual uh, i got my arm around you on the sofa sort of tone or it's or it's uh yeah it's shouted dialogue and those are sort of the the ends of the beginning and end of his acting range well let's uh see what adam sampler has to say about that Hmm. how to get burned how to get burned how to get burned how to get burned i don't know great that's what what adam sampler (laughs) (laughs) just an example of uh you know the very talented uh uh, nicholas cage um yeah so Having seen the first movie and now seen the, the, the remake, Brian, thoughts, opinions, viewpoints, considerations? I didn't think this movie created the, 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 the immersion, I guess, that the first one did. You felt, you felt um, like you were is gaslighted. What does gaslighted even mean? Is that what the term I want to use? I think uh, defining terms is incredibly important. So, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, so I would say ga- gaslighting, as I understand it, is that someone is telling you something or implying that you are the one in this exchange who is for not a better term crazy well maybe that's not the term then but like in the 73 version you know (laughs) reality and and truth are on the are clearly on the detective side and, and you can tell that everybody in the village is lying to him and trying to hide something and 
and um, in cahoots with one another. And I didn't get that vibe. I didn't, I didn't get that sense of creepy otherworldliness in this remake. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Creepy. So the, the first movie had this, I would call it a quarantined Island in that they're separated from society and they have kind of uh, built their own culture uh, in a way. And, uh, and it felt very almost like they're from a different planet. And, and you're saying that that wasn't translated or that wasn't present in the remake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You didn't, it didn't have that otherworldly um, kind of skin crawl, 25% skin crawl sort of mm-hmm. feel. And there was also a big difference with this one besides replacing apples with bees mm-hmm. or apples with honey. Uh, there's a whole like matriarchy thing going on in this movie. Right. What did you make of all that? That was a parallel or uh, a, a categorical difference between the first one and the second one. The first one being that you had this paganism and this Christianity, Christianity that clashed in this version, you have this matriarchal society. Mm -hmm. And then this guy who comes in masculinity, whoever you want to call him comes in with his gun waving around, Mm -hmm. you know, breaking up classrooms and interviewing people or interrogating them uh, in in a sort of uh, garish, which maybe is not the best term, but, this obnoxious level of aggression towards others on the island. So that I think that's the the difference here is that it's not paganism and in, in, in Catholicism or Christianity. It's feminism and masculine sort of traits uh, warring in a sense. Yeah. Um, so then maybe Nicholas Cage as a yelling, obnoxious figure was a good acting choice. Yeah. And then the other piece of it is the um, in thinking about the isolation of society and um you could call it i guess the the bee society is that the the women were kind of built up in a structure of bees where you had mm-hmm. worker bees yeah. like the men who were just essentially idiotic who were only carrying out you know heavy lifting and such i think something had been done to the men too either their tongues had been cut out or they had been their brains had been damaged in some way. Cause I don't think any of them could speak or would speak. I don't know. They at least seem distant. They could be uh, hobbled in a sense. So it was a society reflected in the form of a bee colony. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when Nick gets sacrificed at the end, everybody shouts, kill the drone or the drone must die or something. The drone bee. In other words, I had trouble understanding what they were saying. I didn't know what they were yelling. I, I thought it was Patron. Patron must die. And I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> That's the drone. <laughs> yeah, now I know. <laughs> so, okay. So if if, uh, if he's the drone, what is the drone? Maybe this isn't a topic worth discovering or, or reviewing is how is he operating as a drone within this beehive? Mm. You know, doesn't quite yeah. fit. He's not impregnating anyone or no queen. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Um, Although he did impregnate his uh, fiance, and it felt like, okay, so fair enough. So the fiance goes out of this sort of culture, finds a man to impregnate her, and then comes back. So, yeah, I guess he, I didn't know what a drone did, but as you first said, the one that impregnates, that's what he did. Well, I don't know. My, uh, I'm a little rusty on my bee, mm. my uh, apiary knowledge. Um, right. But- yeah, <laughs> I think the the vet. I don't know who who gets to. I don't know if drones, any drone, any old drone can can impregnate the queen or whether. I feel like most drones, 
build the hive and go out and get the pollen and and defend mm-hmm. defend the hive and um I, yeah maybe maybe one of them just happens to impregnate the queen too but i feel like there might be a special male set subset i don't know maybe not mm. Well, let's just go with the drone piece. It fits okay. in the narrative. I mean, you have the worker bees, which would be the men out there collecting the sticks and, and such like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. obviously the, the queen bee, who was the, the main female lead who was directing all the traffic and had the um, fantastical outfits on and such like that. Yeah, and just the, even the setting, like the her house, you know, we didn't, like in the first movie, Christopher Lee, uh, Lord Summer Isle has this amazing mansion and you, you, you're invited inside it as the viewer and you're impressed by the wealth and architecture and so on. Like you, you kind of feel like you're in the house of an English Lord or whatever, but this movie didn't, didn't spend any money on the sets. I think, you know, she's just wearing this shawl and standing out in a field in front of a bees and, and there's her house is just like this weird wooden boathouse thing and you know there's no like majesty to it in the way the first one had some you know they had like stonehenge and that and that scene where the whole i'm just dumping on the movie at this point but that scene Mm -hmm. where the whole village is is processing to the sacrifice and all that um that was just so lackluster in this movie like nobody was really dancing and some people were just walking (laughs) and and oh my god it was just like so flat I, I mean, when, when when Nick Cage was in that bear costume, and then he goes running up to save his his daughter and just decks that lady. <laughs> oh my god! So I laughed so hard at that. Yeah, they just oh. calls them bitches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was, uh, that, in fact, yeah. Let's uh, Adam Sampler. You bitches! You bitches! And you that, said there was that, a scene by the there. Way, just to put that put that quote in context. That acting. In context, that, that's the height of the movie, the emotional pitch of the movie where he's being dragged to sacrifice. And the only, the only line he's able to utter is, you bitches. <laughs> well, it fits into the masculine and feminine warring qualities between the, the two, two uh, you know, the, 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 that tension between those two pieces in the movie. But, yeah, it's, it's a, on the lower shelf of things. But um, So you're saying at that scene, actually, it feels like there I think there are a couple different versions of this movie out. And you said when you saw that scene where all the bees are coming into his helmet, you don't recall that scene. No, I, I watched this on Amazon and maybe I saw an edited version. I, there's that scene where he runs through the beehive earlier in the movie and gets mm-hmm. stung and all that and has to have some procedure done to save his life. But yeah, when he was sacrificed, I saw it in the preview. Mm. When I watched the preview, they were putting bees in a basket on his head inside of the wicker man but the movie version unless i just like <laughs> yeah I well was, do you remember a point at which nick cage gets hobbled where they take big hammers and knock his knees and break his knees so yeah i remember that and they put him in a you sack. saw that scene though yeah okay okay that's interesting yeah, the, yeah the no the the rest of but there was a weird scene where like everybody was walking towards the wicker man statue and there was there was audio of nick cage screaming and saying no 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 my legs actually no yeah but they didn't show it they just Uh, laid in the audio over the later scene i think that again as as coming from the director commentary track they were saying that the scene in which nick is on the ground and he and the and the the men in in the in the hive I, i guess are bashing in his knees so that he can't get up 
And then at that point, they put a helmet and then dump a bunch mm. of bees in his helmet and they're going around. In fact, you know, if, if Adam Sampler, you need to. What, what is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! So at this point, ah! you know, they're I, 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 I heard all that, but I didn't see any of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, I, wonder if, well, I wonder if they had to cut that out to get it to a certain rating. Or, I think that was PG-13. They're probably getting to a PG-13 rating, which is weird. Like, uh, is that really, does that really change the audience that much, PG-13 to R? I mean, obviously you're cutting out an adolescent audience, but are adolescents going to see the Wicker Man remake? It's, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But um, yeah, and so that was... Uh, that was a scene you didn't see, so he was hobbled or whatever, and then uh, the bees were dumped in him, and then and then actually after that they inject him with another epipen to get him back up. Oh jeez, I don't know why they do that. That's the weird. bitches, you know, the bitches, yeah, just bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Nick was right. Yeah. yeah. So, well, there's one little uh, element that carried over was this idea as required for the for the sacrifices that the policeman comes over and on act of free will. He's he is he's, mm. he's taken in uh, based on his own motivations to find himself on the island investigating. And it gets a little gray there as to what at what point his free will is not present anymore and he wants to leave. And yet they're still declaring he's there on his own accord. And this was a big deal in the first movie. The, the sacrifice had to have certain qualities, one of which is that he was coming to be sacrificed of his own free will. So. Mm hmm. And that does bring me to the question which we've asked ourselves before is free will. Mm. I feel like we have slightly different opinions on free will and, and what that is and if it even exists. Well, what are those opinions that we each have? You go first. Okay. Well, I think that the I, – I do believe that free will is a thing. And uh, the way that I sort of frame this is in – Two elements that I think are critical in free will or for it to be a part of one's life. And that is between reason, the ability for one to reason and their own consciousness. And I think those two variables are critical. And there are many elements in one's life genetically, uh, as far as how they were raised, uh, as far as where they were born, in which there have been elements that have been cast into their experience that's unmovable. But if they implement their their given gift of reason and provide enough space for it, so expand their consciousness or expand their ability to self-observe and, and, and be aware of their world, then through that, there's some level of agency that's created in which they can navigate and carve out a small section of their own uh, freedoms, as uh, Bush would have said. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I think that people who are thinking the free will uh, doesn't exist, they're trying to take our freedoms. <laughs> so let me try and paraphrase your argument. You're saying that <laughs> there, there's certain genetics you mentioned, the way we were raised and where we were born. Yeah. Those, are, those are unmovable, which means right. that you can't change them, apparently. Well, I mean, you could move someplace else, but you're kind of thrown, like even the time period in which you're born, you're kind of thrown into this experience. And so I can't say, well, I prefer to be born in 1800. And, and then if I can't do that, then I must not have free will. So there's, there's incredible amount of elements about my existence and everyone's existence that are unmovable or have been provided to us without our choice. 
but okay. So yeah, let me, okay. let me continue. So there's sure. there's that you can't change. You can't you can't will yourself out of your genetic endowments or the way you were raised or mm-hmm. or the s- historical circumstances mm-hmm. in which you live. Okay, so then you say that there's reason. And you also mentioned consciousness, but you didn't say anything about consciousness. So you're saying that reason is a little, it sounds like a little lever that you can wiggle to yeah. maybe, let's say, if, if like, can I just throw a number out there? 80% sure. or 90% of your choices are informed by this uh, genetics and upbringing and historical circumstance. Maybe 10% are um, manipulable by your reason. Uh, fair, I could I, I could even go I could go down to five percent mm. I could go down to five percent um, because the baked in qualities of uh, y- your upbringing and, and the genetic qualities that one you inherit are pretty significant. But yeah, the the weaponization of your ability to to wiggle out of these circumstances are is entirely couched in the the gift of reason, the ability to reason something, and the the scope in which you can utilize this reason is widened by your ability to take a moment, bring in a higher sense of consciousness and awareness of your self and surroundings and and world in which you've been placed, and then make choices, which then create agency in a sense. That's, that's, uh, that's my position here, roughly. So you, is it fair to say that you don't really think that we have free will? We just have, a, a tiny little 5% of, of our will that is free. The 95% of our will is predetermined. Is that, that that's, yeah, I would say that's how I would, how I would see it. Yeah. So can you give an example of uh, a situation where one of your choices was 95% predetermined and then 5% freely chosen? Yeah. A good example would be maybe a comparison to two different people and their circumstances. So, if you have someone who had a very poor upbringing and they are more, they're steered more by their reactions to things in a almost a panic or a threatened way in which they rely more on their impulses and their, and their sort of um, uh, return to familiar behaviors. And so there's this unconscious sort of element to them. And let's say, for instance, they get hit over the head with a brick or something in a fight, and then they have a TBI or a traumatic brain injury, which has then affected part of their brains. And so their impulsivity has now been a little bit more uh, short-circuited or or short-wired. That's reduced the amount of agency they have in life because many of the compromises to their existence have has impacted their ability for observing their own ego in a sense. So that's the the conscious piece of it. And maybe their thought process and the prefrontal cortex has also been compromised some. So their ability to reason has been reduced. And so then they're operating on a much thinner sort of agency level in which they can interject and change an event. So I might be at the grocery store and under this condition of person and uh, I don't know, somebody... I'm at the cashier and and she or he checks out something incorrectly. I might have a much shorter fuse in which I operate much more uh, intensely and aggressively towards this person. Substitute in someone who hasn't had these qualities 
grew up in a house in which there is tremendous amount of resources, wasn't knocked over the head. They have a larger spectrum of space in which they can step into, find safety, self-reflect, see that there is an error, but no intention from cashier to ruin my day and kindly say, hey, look, there's a there's an error here. I think you might have scanned this twice kind of a thing. So, so you're, you're saying that individuals can vary in the amount of their behavior that is predetermined and the amount of their behavior that is freely chosen. Mm-hmm. And so what's the maximum that you would say a human could have of free will? Someone who has spent a significant amount of time reflecting on things, sort of creating space in between their thoughts and behaviors, and they are provided a sense of safety through money or nutrition or safety, all sorts of things that insulate one, shelter them from the the chaos that introduces a more impulsive or reactive experience. So I don't know if I'm scaling it, maybe 10%. If I find myself in a situation in which I'm provided all those resources, my reason and, and space for reason and consciousness has been widened under my intentional uh, approach to circumstances, something like that. So we're, we're both readers of Sam Harris. Yeah. And I think we both just reread his book on free will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I'm just channeling what I think he would say and, and yeah. did, did say in his book. And, and I think it would go something like this, this, this ability that you have in which um, you and which other people have too, to greater or lesser degrees this space between their thoughts and their behaviors, this ability to sort of self-check their impulses, that ability is not something that is under their control either. So you didn't choose to not yell at the grocery store clerk in your example. That was just Mm -hmm. an outcome of prior conditions that your brain had been in and the way you were educated and life experiences that you've had. You Mm -hmm. you, You couldn't have done otherwise. In other words, you couldn't have, you didn't stand there and, and, um, freely will to, to be, behave. You just behaved. I sort of fundamentally disagree with that. I, I do. I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't say I fundamentally disagree with that because there are large sections of that that are true. Like I was sort of suggesting 95% of my existence is somewhat predetermined or, or orchestrated by conditions and situations but that by but but if I take that to a hundred percent, then I have then discounted fully in a sense, and I know that this is somewhat described differently in uh, his book that I've then surrendered all of my ability to have consciousness and observation and reason, and there's a kind of a a way in which he describes in which reason and the ability to widen my consciousness through available time and consideration are circumstances in which I've only found myself in. And my decision to then do that is only based on the fact that I found myself in such a situation. I don't know if that's how he would say it or how you would think he would say it or how you understood him saying it. But that's kind of my understanding is that no matter where I find myself along this map, I can always point backwards and say, well, yeah, but only because of your historical situation and genetic makeup and, you know, time of day and such like that. Yeah, I think that is his argument is that all, all of your 
behaviors and thoughts and so on are not caused by, they are reviewed by your consciousness, but they don't originate there. That's his, that's the way I understand his argument. Your thoughts and behaviors and words and actions are caused by your brain, but not by the conscious part of your brain. Your choices, some of your choices pass through the lens of your conscious part of your brain, but that doesn't mean that they originated there. That's the crux of his argument as I see it. That position, I think, is defensible and I think is, uh, to some degree, easy to fall back into because you can use that same argument for it's it's a it's a perfect defensible argument for any other situation that's proposed to it. Can you give an example that where you really feel like you could have acted otherwise? Because that, that's the definition of free will that I assume we're both operating with. You you chose in, the, in your example not to yell at the cashier, but you could have yelled at the cashier. So you can take that example if you want. What, what would it mean? The problem with this discourse based on that rule set is that no matter how I frame it, it will be defeated by the the simple review of, well, I couldn't have found myself in a situation otherwise given the time, place, and, and situation. So I could say that, well, the day before I spent time reflecting on the fact that every day up until that point I'd yelled at the cashier and then I then considered why I was doing it and then came to the conclusion that it was displaced anger because of something that happened in my youth. And then I decided at that point that, okay, now I've discovered this due to consciousness, observing ego and reason. And now I go forward not doing that. And so that's where I would operationalize the reason and consciousness. But I think that the argument of, well, you wouldn't have been able to come to those conclusions other than having to have inherited a certain genetic component during a certain time of day with a certain, because you ate a sandwich at a particular time. And so all these constellation of variables intersect at this point in which you wouldn't have been able to do it differently. That's my understanding of the, the defense of not having free will. But if, if that's the path that one takes, then you've basically deleted in my view of it, reason. And I think reason is the, the the cornerstone piece of it. Maybe sections near to it might be deduction or judgment. And um, if it all kind of comes down to that point of which it couldn't have happened any differently, well, then it makes reason and judgment and deduction essentially obsolete and invalid as even a, a concept. So you're saying that determinism, which is Sam Harris's position, all, all of our thoughts and decisions and emotions and actions are, are determined by prior brain states. You're saying that determinism destroys reason. Is that right? That's what I'm sort of saying, yeah. So how would you define reason? I see reason as a, a, a trait, only using the population of Earth, is a, is a trait that humans have greater access to that allows a certain reflection of person through the lens of either an observing ego or self-consciousness to then create agency and make decisions, determinations 
and that's sort of my definition of reason, which maybe isn't clear enough. And if you, you know, go to a squirrel, let's say, they may have a certain amount of reason and a certain amount of consciousness, but it's at a smaller fraction and I, I don't live in a squirrel body. So I don't know what that experience is like, but it appears through just sort of observation that humans have a greater capacity for this. And so that's, that's the variable that would be required. And I don't know if I defined reason sufficiently or not. I, I, I heard two, two, two things. One, humans have more of it than squirrels. Mm -hmm. And also that it's a faculty that allows reflection. You can observe the observing ego. Yeah, it's like people, people I think are very self-conscious and self-centered. And yeah. I don't know if a squirrel is self-centered okay, in the so same way. If I'm understanding the argument in the book correctly, I don't think Sam Harris would disagree with you on either of those points. Mm -hmm. um, we have more of this faculty than squirrels do. And we can certainly reflect on our own behavior and make judgments about it. And, and neither of those, I think he would say, is evidence for free will, because all he, all he says about your second point is that uh, he keeps m making the argument throughout, throughout the book that free will isn't really even an interesting philosophical problem. Ultimately, it's just a feeling. It's a feeling that all of us have for some reason. It must confer some survival benefit, is my hypothesis. It's a feeling we have sort of a, a high five that we give ourselves for certain actions that we did and a thumbs down for other actions that we've did. So it's that element of, of, of the observable ego, self-reflection, whatever, uh, sort of a painting a mental picture of the kind of person I'd like to be through that reflection. But that doesn't that's just a feeling that we have about predetermined actions, which we've made. So what about that? I would, I would say that that is what the book is saying. And it's somewhat fully entrenched and very difficult to upend. It's almost like the only antidote to that, I believe is the faith in a sense in uh, reason, essentially, which I realize isn't necessarily a scientific review of it, but thinking of my position where it is in the present space and time today, that through reason, I'm able to make choices which then influence my future. And the, the best reasons or the best choices are those that are done through reason and self-observation. It'd be very difficult to argue against what he's saying and so I, I just accept it as that is a, an interesting argument. I, I feel, and this is a completely different view of it, but I, I see it as the same argument as someone might come to me and say, hey, you know, maybe consciousness is such that we're in um, a glass bottle, our brains are, and uh, everything we're experiencing is an illusion. I don't have an argument to say otherwise, because there's a there's a limit to one's ability to measure that. And uh, the same thing, I, I believe, with the free will argument is that that's a solid place to stand. I, I don't stand on that, or I do stand on it with 95, even as much as 90, 97% mm. truth. But there's a little vibration at reason that allows some, some movement beyond 
uh, deterministic sort of uh, review of it. So again, can you can you give a concrete example of that three percent or five percent in action? This is the problem with the, this discussion is that it's going to loop, I think, because I'm just going to go back to that idea about the grocery store piece where I have I have the option or I, maybe I don't. If you take the free the, the lack of free will argument, I didn't have the option to think differently than I did. But what I'm saying is the, the example would be I took the time to self-observe and reflect back on every moment up until that point in which I was operating based on my sort of psychodynamically charged experience of child rearing in which I was very uh, emotionally intense to people who made mistakes uh, because, I don't know, my dad was such that he didn't tolerate mistakes. And I, I took the moment to reflect on that and then change the way that I approached what I essentially been in, in a some, somewhat sense pre-programmed to do. And so then I have influenced, I've wiggled this little needle a little bit and moved beyond a a pre-programmed existence. So that would be the example. But the counterexample would be, well, I couldn't have been able to make that determination because unless I was this exact person at this exact point in time with this genetic makeup, et cetera, et cetera, however, you, however deep you want to take all those variables, it, that it was inevitable, essentially. It's a, it's a solid perspective, but... I think is that reason allows the adjustment to that. And that's a quality that I think is hard to define even as it exists. That's the counter argument that is not as rigidly and easily defendable. So just to paraphrase your argument, you're saying that you, as a child, you witnessed your dad and other people p potentially not tolerating mistakes, lashing out, behaving rudely to cashiers. Mm -hmm. You don't do that, and today, and so right. you account for that. You sort of overcame your your upbringing, maybe overcame your genetics too, since you're your dad's son, mm -hmm. and and you now identify as you identify with that as a freely chosen decision because because it goes against your genetic programming and the examples from your upbringing right and, and the only way i found myself to be able to do that is through self-observation aka consciousness and reason i kind of see the the i guess what i would call the appeal of that position but again i think that the the sam harris might say that you've you've just reflected on a behavior which was that you did not lash out at the cashier and you've reflected on that behavior in an approving manner and you've chosen to self-identify with that behavior instead of with your father's behavior and and that feels like a freely chosen thing because you've you've sort of given yourself a high five after the fact i, I hear that high five piece I'm, I'm not even suggesting that it's a better way of living one's life I don't see it. I mean, I could see the motivating factor to repeat that behavior because I feel like there's a, a positive experience to be of it. But I could just not have an outburst and the cashier, you know, says something smug and nasty to me. It's like, I know I, I know how to do my job. And then after that, I think, well, I, I should have done an outburst there because it would have been better under the circumstances. And then I could then maybe go back into, well, it was better for me to be uh, you know, sort of aggressive in situations like that. Cause if I'm nice, people take advantage of me. So 
you know, the positive or negative outcome of it is to me irrelevant. It's more of just the, the, the ability to uh, have the capacity for reason and the ability to widen consciousness through self self-observation. Welcome to continue to discuss it more, but I think that's kind of where these two pieces and maybe even more if someone else has a, the listener has a, a, a better review of it kind of end is that it is to my kind of view is that the free will or, or the assumption that there is no free will, I think is easy, more easily defendable because you, you, one just goes back to that same viewpoint of, well, it's circumstantially true. How can one say no to that? Other than, in my view, that reason can come in and and change the agency because of it. But then, well, of course, because it couldn't have been any different. And so then it's like, okay, well, maybe we are in a vat and consciousness is an illusion. All equally very difficult to say differently to. Well, I think that if you feel trapped by the argument or if you feel like the argument is circular or something, I think you need to demonstrate why, because you, you keep using these terms, reason and consciousness without really, in my opinion, applying them to your example, like with the cashier, you, you, you didn't burst out. Um, but you're saying that you're, you're crediting that to a, a steering faculty in the moment. Like you were, you know, you're, you're, you're walking the line between outburst and no outburst. And part of you says outburst and, the other part of you says no outburst and, and you choose which one it is in the moment. But the, the origin of the, I know this is, this is going to sound circular to you, but um, you, you, the argument is that you could not have chosen otherwise because the, the uh, choice originated from prior conditions of your brain and what you choose to consciously subscribe to as exemplifying you or your personality uh, what you consciously approve of is a faculty of, of self-making, which of course we all do, but that's not equatable with the ability to have done otherwise in the moment. This, yeah. So it's just back to that same circular piece is that I think that if one truly has faith and reason, then that's the path they choose is that that's the tool in which they make changes in their life. And, and reason is something that, I might have capacity for based on circumstances, but I didn't genetically inherit reason precisely. And then, but if one says, Hey, reason is only on the, on the platform in which you've inherited it. Well, then the subscription to you have no free will is taken. So it's almost like they operate in two different worlds and they're almost not comparable because in order to assume that you have no free will, it is to say that, Reason itself is only generated from a platform of of your circumstances and uh, genetics. And sort of what I'm saying is that that there's a percent in there where reason supersedes that. And and so this is where it becomes circular is that no, it doesn't because you don't have free will. Yeah, it does because I have reason. No, it doesn't because you don't have free will because you got reason through genetic and situational situations. Well, I, I widened my uh, observation of situation and provided the antidote of reason. Well, you can't have reason because, well, you don't have free will. And so this is kind of where it goes around in circles from 
my perspective, but maybe you could define reason differently or widen that to um, a larger degree. But that's kind of where I see it kind of dead ending. Well, we always come back to this topic, so we'll carry on and a future podcast. So, so one other thing about the movie that I kind of wanted to talk about was the, the structure in which the, the, the laws of the land operated. So mm. there's the, the women here on this island operate almost like a bee community. It's a natural sort of, one could think of it as a natural way of acting because a, a, you know, a colony of bees is operating on an animalistic or an instinct, instinctual basis. And so they've developed this structure, natural law, as it relates to maybe a bee colony. They've sort of adopted this into their island. I think about this in traveling to other countries. I've gone to, you know, different countries and, and I think, hmm, you know, what's this going to be like? One thing that comes to mind or what are the laws here? I don't want to find myself in a situation in which I'm in prison. That would be terrible. And then I think, okay, well, in my current country, I don't know all the laws. In fact, I never went to school in which they taught me the laws. There's a surprising lack of education on the legal system and how it applies to me. I've almost kind of picked it up just by living in a society. What's legal? What isn't legal? There wasn't a class when I was growing up going over all the laws of the United States in which then I know what I can and can't do. And then going to another country, there's not a huge amount of concern that I might break the law, depending on what country you've gone to. Like I've, I've gone to a country in which the laws were significantly different socially. And so there's some concern there. But in thinking about going to Summer's Isle, there's a, there's a whole legal structure there, or at least seemingly, in which the police officer is stepping into and having to navigate. And I don't know if, in regard to natural law, if that fits well within Summer's Isle, because they've kind of adopted a, a bee community and the laws that go around that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with natural law and that concept. Well, I did read the Wikipedia article that you linked. <laughs> yeah. So I consider myself an expert. <laughs> yeah, I, I read the title. Uh, so my my short <laughs> understanding of it is that, uh, that it's sort of the way in which humans sort of adopt natural ways of considering things and being. It's like if I go to a different country and I, I, I walk outside of a regulation, there's a, oh, this guy's from a different country. Let's forgive them. For, let's forgive him for this. He didn't know that he couldn't park his car in this purple zoned area for an hour when it's clearly purple zones or 15 minutes. It's like, okay, that's a very precise, specific thing to that society. But if I go there and I stab someone in the face a few times oh, and I say, geez. oh, I didn't know I couldn't do that here. There's a, there's a certain, really, there's, there's, you know, there's a certain sort of, as, as I would define the natural law pieces that like everyone knows you can't stab people in the face. And I don't know if that definition is loose enough or, or, or not. So is it, uh, is, is this term natural law equivalent to morals? You're asking me, I don't know. I, you could, I think, I think one could adopt that framework that it's uh, maybe a, a more moralistic review the reason I don't travel to this country and stab someone in the face out of ignorance is because stabbing people in the face feels wrong, mm. mor morally wrong. So I, it's not that I'm prevented from doing so 
by a law that existed in my home country, um, which I did not know also existed here or, or something like that. It's because yeah. of my internal moral compass. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know how sensitive one might be to going to another country and uh, having sex with another male, you know, homosexual relationship. And then that country saying, well, that's morally wrong. And then you stepped into a country in, in which you felt it wasn't morally wrong. So, yeah, I, I guess it could be laid at the feet of what is moral and what isn't, but that's not necessarily universal. And and part of bringing it up in relation to Summer's Isle is that, and maybe I'm, this is a bastardization of it, is that is the adoption of a, a society of a different species could be considered as natural law in that, well, this is what the bees do, uh, and bees are natural, and then therefore I'm only subscribing to natural law as it relates to mother nature and uh, it's okay to kill the drone because well they're just there to impregnate the the women bees and, and yeah i don't know i just a sort of I'm a, just trying to, i don't understand you're saying so you're talking about two different countries and and yeah. then you're talking about moving to a moving to a country that is actually run by animals I guess we should step back a little bit and, and get a firm definition of what natural law is. Kind of jumped a little far ahead there. I try to make the association, I think, too quickly. So if we're going to define natural law, how would you define natural law? It's definable in, in contrast to what you could call codified law. So the codified law, an example, is that, you know, the speed limit it's it's 25 miles an hour that's just that's the way it's written it's been codified there's nothing in me that speaks to that as right or wrong necessarily like mm -hmm. maybe there's a feel if i'm driving through a neighborhood that uh 75 miles an hour feels unsafe uh so maybe but why not 30 in or, or 15 so there's rights and wrongs there's there's moral we have an internal moral compass and that guides a lot of our behavior but the law as written, codified law, is meant to be more precise and be more prescriptive and, and directive. So, yeah, it's like, I guess natural law then is, to me, synonymous with having an internal moral compass, a felt sense of right and wrong. Okay, perfect. So let's use the speed limit thing. So not speeding. Okay, so speeding in a 25 mile an hour zone would be a, a breaking of a law that I wouldn't necessarily subscribe as being a natural law. Reckless driving would be a natural law, maybe, where it's, yeah, okay, well, this turn, I felt I could take it at 30 as opposed to 25. I got a ticket. I broke the law, but I didn't break the natural law, let's say. If I go around the turn at 75 miles an hour, okay, well, that was reckless driving. Regardless of what the speed limit happens to be, I was clearly defining what was safety. And so then, therefore, any any citizen who would be reviewing it would say, "Yeah, well, you've you've broken natural law in a sense." Yeah, well, is, is that a, is that a, def, a yeah? I like, that, I, I like that example. And there's speeding, and then there's reckless driving, like you said. Mm -hmm. So the codified law even accounts for that distinction. So if you're going like, I don't know, you can technically, I guess, get a ticket for going one mile an hour over the speed limit. But yeah, if you're going like 19 miles an hour over the speed limit, I think the fines are way more severe and mm -hmm. the legal consequences. Yeah. So there's something about like breaking the law as written and then egregiously breaking the law, which maybe yeah. maps on to that idea of uh, codified and natural law. 
Okay, cool. So now we have that, that sort of working definition, and this is where we're going to take a big leap and, and a, a, maybe even a reckless leap into the <laughs> idea of uh, summer style, is that now they, based on the movie, have taken the law of the bee, the bee laws, and, <laughs> and have, in, have interpreted them and mapped them onto their society. And so is that Summer Isles, in a sense, natural law? Because, you know, in a selfish way, humans think that the way that humans are and, 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 the, and the morals that humans may have are universal. Uh, but bees obviously aren't mapping on to human morals. And so I guess Summer's Isle, just taking this idea, have, have adopted the bees' behavior. And maybe there isn't a, maybe bees and morality just aren't interchangeable. Maybe they're, maybe applying morality to bees is just a total waste of time and, and, and that they don't have a, a structure of, of appropriate and inappropriate behaviors. But either way, Summer, Summer Isles has, has taken on this bee structure. And I could see them saying, well, this is the natural way. This is yeah. the way Mother Nature would have done it. This is the way Mother, Mother Nature does it. Uh, you know, you, and this is going back to the idea of the contrast between, I don't know, uh, maybe Christianity um, and paganism is that, well, the bee does it this way. Mother Nature designed the bee. We only replicate what the bee does. Who's to say that's wrong? And I think that's the stance maybe that someone from Summer's Isle might come and and say to us as having not lived in this uh, quarantined existence. And, and they might say, well, this is natural law, the way that you guys do it. That seems weird. Why would you, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't sit right with us because you're not mirroring mother nature. I don't know. No, I think you're, you're, you're tapping on a, on a, a wound that has festered in, in humanity ever since it, it began to have laws of any kind, because there's always been a conflict, I would say, between natural, what, what feels right and what the law says. And um, you can apply this to any, to a number of situations, you know, a, a, a oppressor and oppressed, a pe- imperial and subject. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of examples from history where in, in terms of the spread of Christianity in particular, where there were, there were local, variance in Christian practice, but there was also this Catholic, this uh, global um, prescribed set of doctrine, which the people in power were trying to ensure was followed everywhere. And so, you know, you can always fall back on that argument that this feels right to us, or this feels right to our community, or this is what our ancestors did. So natural law is kind of just, kind of just that. I think it's, it's a, it's a, defense of uh, uh, a defense position um against people who march in with the codified uh law as 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 their version of things so i'm not sure that yeah the, i mean the movie sort of illustrates that in a in a i would say a silly way because there's there's really nothing beeish about this particular group of women um but besides the fact that they're led by a, a matriarch and they happen to produce honey as their main export i, I mean what else can you can, they don't they don't communicate by chemical signals they don't uh live in a hive they don't uh build anything uh hive like uh bees do not 
sacrifice drones. I mean, the, the, the level of overlap, in my opinion, is pretty thin. Yeah, I could, I could, I would agree with that. I mean, they don't, they don't go out uh, to find food and then come back and do a little bee dance and then and their fellow, uh, you know, woman goes, goes out and, and does whatever that bee dance represents. So there's lots of bee things that aren't represented, but, but to give it some space, to give it some space, if I go to Summer's Isle, who am I to say they can't sacrifice Nick, Nick Cage's, you know, I don't want to step on their natural law. Well, I think that anyone who, any human who murdered someone and said it was sacrifice and their defense was that I live in a society that emulates bee society, we would not take that <laughs> argument seriously. And it's not because we don't respect the idea of natural law. It's because we would consider those people psychopaths or insane. Yeah. Well, just trying to step into the bee community and really see it from their perspective. There, there are thousands of eyes and uh, surprisingly small wings for their body shape. You know, you notice yeah, that you look at a bee bees. and you're just like, you know, how can you get flight with those tiny little wings? Bees are incredible creatures. Yeah, aerodynamically, they're they're um, counterintuitive and uh, yeah, very very intelligent species in terms of their ability to work together. I think that that sets them apart. Maybe not. Yeah, we we we've talked about. Animals having intelligence, dogs and dolphins and, and the great apes, but bees have a kind of communal intelligence, which is noteworthy mm, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they should have formed a bee congress as opposed to have this mother bee uh, kind of be more of a dictator to the rest of the colony. So eh, I'm just saying, maybe we should settle uh, into the bee society and try and prop it up to better emulate uh, the bee culture. If you got some I, spare time, <laughs> if you happen to go across, happen to witness an accident in which someone gets run over and then later have drama from it and, and see visualizations and, and then leave your work, of course, put on your suit and then uh, get in a boat, <laughs> row over to Bee Isle. And, uh, and then at that point, we can get together and restructure their entire community. I, I would just close with this, this thought that What's his name? Johnny Cage? <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage was not the be all and end all of, ah, of this film. That's terrible. Step away from the fight. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> can, I, can I hear the, the bitches one more time? Okay, sure. Thanks. Bitches! <laughs> you bitches! I don't mean that about you, dear listeners. Of course not. Yeah, we're we're just hearing what Nick uh, his, his outrage uh, mm -hmm. from what he's subjected to in, no, in a no, foreign no, that's land. Acting. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've acting. enjoyed this uh, conversation. And, yeah, uh, well, you know, you had no choice. So yeah. um, <laughs> you, I will you take could, from you it. Could not have it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get what you're saying about the argument seeming um, sort of dishonest in a way because you can always. I mean, I think that I, I view that as as what makes the argument inescapable is because you can always but i don't want to go back into it but i see sure. what you're saying there's a simple mechanism for it but my view is that if you adopt it fully then the other things get kicked you there's a sacrifice to it let's say there's a nick cage sacrifice <laughs> where you kick out uh, other sections that 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 uh you have to discount in order for it to exist and who am i to say i can't say well there's been there's been um, refutations books written against Sam Harris's book, and I, I think the title of one of them was "You Bitches." So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's what we read in preparation for the next podcast. 
All right, sir. Well, don't look over that cliff. They've just um, loaded it with uh, a, a Nick Cage lookalike, and uh, one, one guy has a match. It just he just barely fits in because it's only six foot. I don't know how tall Nick Cage is, but <laughs> it's like an ectoskeleton. This guy's wearing. Well, I w- I won't do that then. 